Whether it's a river runs through it or permarad, the big sky or breaking clean, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott, and we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this great state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. Welcome to Breakfast in Montana. In this episode, we have two mysteries written by authors that aren't normally associated with mystery writing. The first is a novel by Big Sky Journal editor Alan Morris Jones called A Bloom of Bones. And the story revolves around a body that's been discovered on the property of famous Montana poet Eli Singer. Our second novel is a book published in 1981, written by probably the best-known poet from Montana, Richard Hugo. Death in the Good Life follows the adventures of a Montana sheriff named Mushheart Barnes as he tries to solve two murders that he believes are related, even though they were committed 19 years apart. Oddly enough, the protagonist in this novel is also a poet, so we have a few connections between these two books. What makes a good mystery? Uh, that's a really excellent question, I think. And as a professor of literature, I've often taught mysteries, uh, everything from Raymond Chandler to A Bloom of Bones. Uh, but when, I guess I would start with what I think is one of the best mysteries ever written, Oedipus Rex, which is really a story about a guy trying to find out who he is. And to me, that's one of the hallmarks of a, a really convincing murder mystery is that somewhere along the way, a character discovers something about himself. The other aspect of uh, Oedipus that I think is important is that the audience already knows the story. Mm. So the surprise element, uh, the fact that it still gets pulled off somehow is really remarkable. I think a good mystery has to surprise you, but so that at the end you say, wow, of course, rather mm -hmm. than, oh, brother. <laughs> right, right. That reminds me too of the quote from uh, Alfred Hitchcock that I've always liked, which is, he compares mystery to suspense, and he says, a mystery is when you don't know what happens, and suspense is when you do know what happens, but you're still on the edge of your seat anyway, and that reminds me of uh, Alan's book particularly, because he seems to lay out the, uh, the secret to the story right in the very first scene, but it doesn't take away at all from the intrigue of this book. I mean, it's completely suspenseful all the way through. I agree. And it, I don't think he does give away the ending up front. Um, but, you know, there's that famous formula for how do you write a mystery? You start with the end and work backwards. Yeah. And he really, you know, did that to perfection by giving us the opening scene with the body. Mm -hmm. And we think we know what happened. But then the rest of the novel completely challenges us all the way through. Right. So that at the end, everything makes sense, but mm -hmm. not in any contrived way. Plus, there's so much more to the story. So the secret or the mystery of who did it is way less important by the time you get to that point where we do find out. I agree. The real mystery here is who is this guy, Eli yeah. Singer? How the hell is he such a great poet mm -hmm. living in the middle of nowhere in Montana? And Chloe, you know, she really is this detective. Like, she's going to find out not only 
what happened, but who is this guy? Yeah, Chloe is his literary agent who actually ends up falling in love with him. She comes out to Montana to visit, and um, she becomes so completely frustrated with trying to get him to basically communicate at all. <laughs> Typical male. <laughs> right, yeah. Welcome, Alan. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So, first of all, we just wanted to ask you how this story came about. What was the motivation for, for writing a mystery? Well, I, both of you guys uh, write fiction as well. I'm, I'm not sure what your experience has been, but often when, when I'm working on a, a, a novel or, or a short story, I will arrive at a, a scene or a certain character or even um, a sentence or two that, that sticks with me. And then I will explore it. I'll, I'll write it and then I'll rewrite it and then I'll write around it and then I'll um, keep kind of gnawing away at it, if you will, and see where it takes me. Um, and in this case, I, I wrote the, the opening scene of the novel. The first few pages uh, were... The first, uh, the first pages of the book that, uh, the first few pages of the published book are the first few pages that I wrote. I wrote this kind of grisly scene where a, um, where a father and son figure, uh, to, a father and son figures, uh, bury a, a body in the middle of the Missouri River Breaks, which is country that I'm very familiar with in northeastern Montana. And, uh, at the time I wrote the scene, I wasn't sure who the people were. I wasn't sure who the body was. I wasn't sure of anything except here's this this tableau of uh, a father archetype and a, a son archetype burying this body. Uh, and I wrote that I wrote that scene probably more than ten years ago now. Um, and so from there, I started exploring uh, where uh, who were these people, what were their names, what were the circumstances uh, behind this particular death. Uh, and from from that initial scene, then the the entire novel kind of grew organically. Mm, okay, I'm glad to see you're wearing your Missouri Breaks <laughs> hat today. So it's right in keeping with the theme. So just to continue along that line, then, so how did uh, Eli Singer end up becoming a poet? Was that a was that the way you had it from the beginning, or did you try other other different options there? Or? Uh, so the the main character of the book, the protagonist, uh, both in a, um, a reminiscence, which makes up about half of the book, a coming-of-age childhood story set in the 1970s, uh, and then in modern day, both those stories center around uh, Eli Singer, who is a rancher and a poet. Um, and I, anticipating the question, I'm, I'm not really sure how to, to answer it. Uh, Trying to reconstruct it, I, I believe that I had I had a poem that I I liked very much um, called uh, "Building Fence," and uh, I was using it as an epigram for the for the novel. And at some point, and I, I stuck it on the stuck it on the narrative as a way to open the book, as, as you sometimes do. And at some point, it occurred to me, wouldn't it be interesting if I um, attached this poem to one of the characters, to, to Eli, and said, 
okay, well, not only is this, does this poem thematically introduce the book, but it also, maybe it was written by the, the character as well. Right. Um, and I hadn't, I'm sure that's been done before. There are no original ideas in, in fiction, but offhand, I, I, I couldn't think of, a, of another novel wherein that took place, wherein the character laid claim to the, to the epigram or the, or the interstitial poems mm -hmm. uh, throughout the narrative. So if it wasn't original, it was fairly new, which I liked. Yeah. Aaron and I also really love the fact that you uh, started the book off with this scene that you described um, where the son and the father figure are burying this body. I mean, it seems to give away so much of the story. And, um, you know, it's a really courageous way to start a novel because then, of course, you have to sustain the reader's interest for the rest of the book, even though they think they know what happened. So uh, how did you... Um, end up deciding to approach the book that way. I, I really wrestled with it. I mean, it's it's a very it's a very sharp observation that it's it's a, it's it's a risk. I, I wouldn't say it's brave. I mean, it's going to going to Iraq is brave. You know? <laughs> uh, it's but it's narratively it's risky. Do you you don't want to give away too much before the reader's involved in the story. Um, but I, I was very attached to it. Again, that was kind of a, the first scene that I wrote in the book. And um, I felt that it, however the rest of the novel played out, I, I wanted to open with that, with mm -hmm. that idea. Um, and part of it was the Missouri Breaks are, are a very lonely, kind of isolated part of, part of Montana. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you could commit, you know, a horrible crime in the middle of the breaks and, and get away with it in this way um, was an idea that appealed to me as a novelist. There's a lot of potential in, in fiction with, with that context. So um, you're 50 miles from Jordan, you're 50 miles from law enforcement. You know, you, if, you, if, you, if you were someone who wanted to, to bury a body, this is the place to mm -hmm, do it. Right, so, yeah. Um, so I wanted to enforce that kind of right away as well. Sure. So were there any particular themes that emerged while you were writing this book, or did you think about that at all, or in hindsight maybe? You know, yeah, I, I think the themes emerge largely in hindsight. Um, specifically as I was writing it, I wanted to explore the idea of, of guilt, of, mm. linger, of lingering guilt in the way that could shape a life. Um, if you were involved in one of the most horrible crimes imaginable, particularly at a young age, how would that affect the rest of your life? How would right. that play out? Um, and that's a that's a specific theme through the through the novel. Um, hopefully, hopefully there are there are more themes <laughs> in, in the book. Uh, but if, if uh, I could jump in there, yeah. Um, one of the things that I really liked about the book is the relationship between Eli and his sister. Mm -hmm. And maybe you could speak to that in the context of this guilt or... Yeah. So there are, in, in the coming, coming of age aspect of the narrative, looking back to the 1970s, our protagonist, Eli Singer, is a 12-year-old boy uh, with a 
uh, an older sister on the verge of adolescence or, or in adolescence. And he is, at the beginning of the narrative, his loyalties lie entirely with the sister. As the story progresses, he is torn between a father figure between his future stepfather and his sister. Um, and he ends up casting his lot with the, the stepfather over the sister. And so in addition to the specific guilt of being involved with this, this horrible crime, there is um, a more subtle sort of guilt, which is the betrayal of a family relationship or what the narrator sees as a betrayal. Um, everything, everything that takes place in the early, in the early years is, comes to us through Eli's reminiscence. It's first person, and so I think it would probably be a mistake to to um, give give to believe wholesale everything that, that Eli necessarily relates to the reader uh, it, through first person. But but certainly there is there is there are layers of 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 guilt and obligation and conflicting feelings from the character, mm-hmm. uh, particularly with regard to his sister. Right. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we both really noticed and, and loved about this book too, is the, the, the relationship you're talking about with the father figure, the way that opening scene establishes that relationship in such an intimate way. I mean, they're, they're doing something pretty grisly, mm-hmm. but the, um, the dialogue is incredible, and it just creates this immediate um, knowledge within the reader that these two have a really close bond. And um, that was one of the things we, we really loved about this book that throughout was the dialogue, how much it revealed about the characters. Thank so you. Just, thank you very much. Yeah, we just wanted to congratulate you on that part. I appreciate it. Um, I guess one thing that I'm really uh, fixated on is the uh, the poet and the fact that the guy is a poet and why he's a poet and how that connects to mystery in general. Um, when I was writing up my notes for this, I was thinking about you know one of the earliest works of literature is Oedipus Rex, and that's also a detective story. And it's poetry. And there seems to be some relationship between solving a mystery and solving a linguistic mystery of a poem. Or That's, that's a very interesting idea. I, I wouldn't disagree with you. Uh, it hadn't specifically occurred to me, but I think, uh, I think that's a very good point. Um, po- poetry versus... Other types of writing, I think he, he could have, he, I, I wanted a character who was uh, observant in a certain way, and I wanted a, po- a character who was a wordsmith to justify the, the first-person narrative. Here is someone who takes a certain care with the language, so it's natural that he would write this type of memoir. Um, for the purposes of the story, I'm not sure whether he he had to be a poet. I think he... Well, the, it, it, would, it would have been also interesting if he was a novelist or, or a short story writer. Or, you know, yeah, I guess that's kind of what I'm getting yeah. at is... Uh, it, to me, it just wouldn't work if he was a, a novelist or a, a fiction writer because that's already 
more narrative, yeah. whereas the, the poem is philosophical. And this is a deeply philosophical book. Yeah. I, think, uh, I think maybe poetry in particular, but, but uh, you know, any, any sort of literary calling, I think, is, yeah. is necessarily a, a very lonely pursuit. You spend a lot of time um, in a room by yourself with a cup of coffee and a computer trying to put words on the page. Uh, and one aspect of his character, maybe maybe the defining aspect of his character, uh, is isolation. Yeah. Uh, he is he's somebody who's very very lonely, stuck out in the middle of of the Missouri Breaks on this ranch. Uh, he is isolated both literally and figuratively by by his history. Uh, and so the isolation, I think, complements the poetry and and vice versa. I also love the way um, it played out with his girlfriend slash agent too, because mm-hmm. um, you know he, being a poet, he's he's very spare with his comments, with his words, and you know even when he ends up falling in love with this woman, getting her her efforts to get him to talk about anything are are just so frustrating and. Um, She's like an emotional detective. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I... uh, So in that way, the poet thing worked really well, I thought. I'm I'm glad to hear it. Uh, It's always a trick for me to to write uh, accurate kind of laconic Western dialogue. You know, I Mm -hmm. think uh, it's something that that you very rarely, you know, see in Western letters um, that... You know how do you how do you communicate uh, entire conversations within a few words? You know, yeah. as, you, as you so often see happening in real life, you know there'll be a couple, you know, ranchers or old cowboys having breakfast, and they an entire conversation can take place in you know half a dozen sentences mm-hmm. going back and forth. Yep. You know, and that's a real trick. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's frustrating when you see it. Uh, when you see it not done very well. Yeah. You know, it's too easy to... That's well, right. In, in, anyway. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just one more yeah, uh, practical question. How long did it take you to write this book? Because it only took me about five hours to read it. So the, uh, the first draft, the, the book was cooking for a long time. So the first draft was written um, 10 or 12 years ago, as I mentioned. Um, and it was much longer than what was eventually published. The first draft was... Uh, over 100,000 words, 120,000 words. Um, and uh, at the time, I... Not very laconic. Not very laconic. And um, at the time, I, I made the mistake of trying to shop it around and find a publisher for it and uh, was discouraged that no one wanted to pick it up. Uh, but it probably wasn't ready to be published at that point. Um, and so over the intervening years, I kept going back and revisiting it. I didn't give up on it. Um, I felt like there was a good story there. I just had to to kind of find it. And so the, the process of rewriting in the interim, I would rewrite and then let it sit, and then I would go back and rewrite again and let it sit. Uh, there were three or four major revisions in there over the course of 10 years, uh, and each one would whittle it down a little bit tighter. Sure. So uh, the final the final draft is... 55,000, 60,000 words, something like that. Wow, that's a big um, cut. Really? So, uh, so what finally was published is kind of 
boiled boiled down to its grit, if you will. Yeah, um, it shows. It's Definitely. perfectly lean. Well, yeah. thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, Alan, thanks a lot for joining us. We really appreciate having you. Thank you guys so much. Maybe we could just talk about the, the, the style of these two books. Definitely. The fact that they both involve uh, poets. So in the Hugo book, Mushheart Barnes, as well as some other unlikely characters, including a DA and another cop, are all poets. Right. Um, but not in a very convincing way, and we never get any of their poetry. That's true. Um, in Alan's book, the central character is a poet, a phenomenal poet, um, and that psychological fact and the fact that he's such a philosophical guy really is a central element of his character. It also moves the plot along. Yeah. And I love the fact that it included one of the poems as an epigraph to each chapter. So it gives you not only a wonderful way of sort of taking us into this character, but Alan turns out to be an amazing poet. It's true. And that's the thing, you know, this novel would not be the novel it it is if those poems weren't stellar. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so he pulled off a lot of different things in the context of a very brief uh, book. I think he said 60,000 words. It's not a word wasted in it. Right. And totally believable that this guy is a, considered one of the better poets. So the, let's talk about the difference between that and the, 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 real, the man who's considered one of our best poets, Richard Hugo, and his book, uh, death and the good life. Well, I think the best way into it is to pick up the theme you just mentioned, the believability of it. In literature, we talk about verisimilitude, which is a fancy uh, Latin word, but it means like the truth. And for fiction to succeed, it has to have verisimilitude. It has to be like the truth. And Alan's book is so like the truth that you're convinced the whole way through. And I keep saying, I the first time I read this book, I read it in one sitting. I couldn't put it down. Whereas the Hugo book is the opposite of believable. <laughs> On every page, it's preposterous. Yeah. And the characters are cardboard, and many of them, you know, totally unbelievable. The plot itself is like a Swiss cheese. Yeah, full of <laughs> holes. Um, I kept thinking about the fact that, you know, you can always tell when something um, sort of that's supposed to be shocking is thrown in just for effect rather than as something that might have actually happened. The this, whole necrophilia. It happens over in the necrophilia, the the twist at the end. I mean, all these things. The sex that, scenes, right. the gratuitous sex scenes. Yeah. Um, and I guess what, you know, I've read this book twice, once not long after it came out in the 80s uh, when I was still in high school. But uh, then last week I reread it. And I guess what, most disappointed me about it is I just expected so much more from yeah. the guy who is the perennial poet laureate of the state, you know, the, yeah. our I guess most it, famous writer. Right. I guess it kind of goes <coughs> to show that, you know, just because somebody is really adept at one form uh, doesn't mean that they necessarily have a, a I mean, to me, the, the thing that was um, clear about like these 
surprise twist was that it was the sign of someone who's not confident about what they're doing. I definitely got that feeling too. Yeah. Like I would love to know his motivation. Like what did he just do this on a lark? Did he yeah. need the money? Did somebody put him up to it? Like what, what was his stake in this? Cause I feel like it wasn't very much like, right. I would love to know how he felt about the book. I bet he wasn't very close to it. Yeah. Well, it kind of felt that way. And, um, as somebody told us, um, uh, when a, a detective friend of his who read it said that the, it wasn't even very carefully researched. There was a lot of mistakes in it as far as procedural stuff and things like that. So, And all of that, I think, would be forgivable, or you could even yeah. look past it if the prose itself, you know, sang like poetry, yeah, which it doesn't. Right. That was, the mo- that was one of the most surprising things about it. Like, there's... So, Alan's book has this incredible, succinct, really great dialogue. And... Uh, for a poet, I couldn't believe how many passages in Hugo's book where characters would talk for paragraphs, you know, like give these speeches. It just wasn't anything like how people talk. No. Unless it didn't feel like it was written by a poet. <laughs> it, I guess that in the final analysis, that's my feeling about it is um, because I do think poetry and mystery are so, so aligned um, that I'm just surprised it's not a better novel. And yeah. who knows why he didn't produce something you know far superior to that right yeah so i think it might be interesting to talk a little bit about um so you asked you said something about the motivation for it and you know hugo was had established himself by this time uh a lot of his reputation was based on the fact that he was an incredible teacher he he uh ended up becoming sort of the stalwart of the University of Montana writing department and created a, an amazing um, number of amazing writers from that from that program. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, whether or not you're a fan of his poetry, and I think many people would, you know, recognize him as maybe a major minor poet. I don't think there's any dispute that he did more to put the University of Montana writing program on the map yeah. than anyone else. And the number of people who studied under him and went on to be great mm-hmm. writers themselves. Uh, it's pretty impressive. So maybe a lot of it was just like a, the challenge of trying something new or, you know, like you said, maybe there was a, a an advance that was, you know, someone suggested to him that they'd be willing to pay him a yeah. certain advance. Who knows, you know. I think of uh, the next one of the writers that we'll talk about in the next episode, Jim Harrison, how he got into writing novels. Um, I think the story I read was, you know, he was a poet. Right, and an amazing poet. And uh, hurt his back really bad and was in the hospital. And Tom McGuane told him, well, you're laid up. You might as well write a novel. Oh, really? And that's how he wrote uh, uh, Wolf. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't know that. I don't know. Seems like I read that somewhere. Yeah. It's a good story whether it's true or not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I think it's just safe to say that... um, we liked one book better than the other one this time around. Uh, definitely, I <laughs> I think Bloom of Bones will uh, will endure into the future as one of the great Montana books, and definitely one of the best mysteries I've read by it anyone. Was just a fabulous book, and you know, I I thought about the fact that you know I read it the second time this week, and um, I was just as engaged, just as um, caught up in the characters, and I was also amazed that I couldn't remember how it ended. And to me, that's a sign of a really amazing book is that 
you know, it's not really important what the... The, the climax is not... Exactly, uh, yeah, yeah. Everything else was so... Uh, just kept you sucked into the book the entire time. And one other thing I think is worth mentioning, if you're familiar with um, his other book, Last Year's River, yes. it's their completely different styles. Completely different, yeah. You wouldn't even think they were by the... And that's a great book, too, but mm -hmm. um, pretty impressive that... Yeah. So we'd like to uh, recommend that you go out and buy a copy of A Bloom of Bones. And um, next time around, we're going to discuss two books by a father and daughter. The first is called uh, A Good Day to Die by Jim Harrison. And the second is by his daughter, Jamie Harrison, called The Widow Nash. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back again for another episode of Breakfast in Montana. See you next time. Thank you.